Come on, Sarah. Serenade us. Hey, let's get this done, Serenade. Serenade. <laughs> <laughs> Hey y'all, happy new year and welcome back to season two of Midnight Theology. I'm your host today, Larry Frank, and I'm joined by Adam Penn. Howdy. Sarah Wank. Hey y'all. And Gabe Wank. Happy new year. And we are for the first time in Midnight Theology history, all in the same room as we record. We have taken some time to retreat from the world uh, post-Christmas, and we are uh, in a cabin, uh, held up in a cabin together in southern Illinois, uh, checking out a beautiful view this morning, and just uh, spending some time resting. Anybody have any any last-second thoughts as 2021 is now in the rearview mirror and we look at 2022? You want to bit it bone, (laughs) bone biage in a certain way? Please, Lord Jesus. <laughs> Help 2022 be better. <laughs> I got nothing. Yeah. So, hey, uh, we're we're trying to start 2022 off on a good note. Uh, and um, at my church and Adam's church, both, uh, we're starting um, the new year with a sermon series based on a book by John Mark Comer called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And like in the middle of 2021, uh, George Acevedo, who was on the podcast previously, uh, handed me this book, uh, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and said, read it. Uh, and I've just been totally captivated uh, by it. I was already starting to deal with some uh Uh, toxic uh, behaviors that I had in my approach to work and life rhythms and things like that. And the ruthless elimination of hurry really kicked my butt on that and helped me to to start further moving out of some of those uh, toxic patterns. Uh, It's based around a quote from that Dallas Willard, uh, something Dallas Willard once said to John Ortberg, that hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life. And John Ortberg asked, what do we do about it? And he said, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Uh, So we're going to spend some time today talking about the ruthless elimination of hurry, kind of based around the book, but also kind of around our own uh, practices of moving out of a hurried um, kind of lifestyle. Um, And one of the things we talked about uh, as we were talking about this is that there is a difference between being busy and being hurried. Uh, And that's one of the things we really need to prod uh, because we're all busy. It's the world that we live in right now. Gabe is taking photos as we record. Um, You'll see those later. Um, And uh, so many of us have busy lifestyles. We can't go to a pre-Wi-Fi world. Uh, We can't, you know, um, go back to the dark ages in some ways. Our lives are busy. But it's our reaction in the midst of that busyness, um, our heart reaction, our life reaction to being unhurried. So any initial thoughts on that uh, before we dive into some of the stuff from the book? Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know if I've shared here yet, but if, you've, if you're connected in other circles of my life, it's not uncommon to hear Gabe and I talk about the things of anxiety um, as kind of a newfound uh, <laughs> issue uh, that I that I've been dealing with um, and and I noticed right the the sort of biological reactions of your literally my heart right and my body in the things of hurry that um, can be better controlled right with management 
So, you know, when, when I think about the things of anxiety in my life, there are certain tools you use, right, to help manage the things of anxiety. And, and there seems to be, for me, a great connection between those two things, right? The practices that John Mark will talk about in the book um, that kind of relate to that, whether it's diagnosed or not, right, that anxious way of living that makes your heart um, unsettled, literally can sometimes make your heart race, right? And your biology, um, biophysiology uh, change, right? In the, in the, the stresses and anxieties of life. And he's approaching it from a, a spiritual, um, a, a spiritual approach. And so if there are folks who have dealt with the things of anxiety, right, or trauma or uh, PTSD, or uh, they might find correlation with some of these practices. And that's really what he's talking about. How do you, you know, your life is going to be full. Um, It's going to be busy and it's going to have the demands of a, the life within our culture. How do you make it non-anxious non-stressed right in the middle of that and kind of the practices um, that are shared between that. And I just appreciate because the, uh, when you talk about the things of stress and anxiety, they don't always talk about it from a spiritual angle, right? They'll talk about it as, you know, time management and self-care and rest. And so to bring those two worlds together, um, there's kind of a collision of that for me that I think is helpful. Yeah. And especially when it comes to time management and, uh, self-care that has become so popular. Like that's kind of a, like a really big buzzword right now, mm-hmm. you know, just like, what are you doing for yourself? It, what often is missed in that conversation is, you know, the th- like Sarah was saying, what are the things I'm doing on a day-to-day basis to build uh, my schedule in such a way that I don't feel the need to self-medicate in unhealthy ways? Yeah. So so maybe before we get into the book and its content, I'll bring that together with this thought from my therapist. So, hey, y'all, you you didn't have to pay for this. So here you go. Uh, You know, free therapy with Aunt Sarah. (laughs) Actually, I was really mad at her one day because she was talking to me about adding some practices into my life, like, you know, exercising or running the things that kind of reduce literally metabolically the things of stress. And I, I, I got mad, you know, thinking, you're taking my busy life and trying to add something else into it. And so we started talking about the things of self-care. Well, you need time for self-care, right? And um, we were processing self-care. And um, at some point she says, you know, self-care is not uh, getting your toes done, right? It's not even going for a run. That's never been a thing for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not the shopping spree. She's like, self-care is actually self-discipline. And that if your life is disciplined and ordered, like your financial house is in order, right? Your health habits are in place um, to keep you as healthy as you can be. You have good boundaries around your work, which will require some effort. Then you don't have to escape from your life with the things of self-care, right? So most people are living the pattern of their life in such a, a busy anxious way that they go shopping or they drink, right? Or they, uh, you know, fill in the blank with whatever to escape from the stress of everyday life. And the things of self-care reinforce that. And we're actually living in a world that is, I mean, all about self-care right now and, and doesn't enforce if you would order and discipline your life, you wouldn't have to escape from it. And I think that's what John Mark is doing. Yes. And a lot of that comes down to having wisdom, right? Like, not it, wisdom and discernment about what are the best things mm-hmm. 
because there are a lot of good things and good ways that I can spend my time and a lot of things I can say yes to, but what are the best things I can say yes to that are going to lead not only to wholeness and fulfillment in my own life, but, but also that are going to be most beneficial to the people I'm accountable to as well. Right. Yeah. I think just uh, as, as, as is normal in our relationship, Sarah, there's, you say things and I agree with like 99% of it, but then there's that 1%, just a, a little measure of pushback, which is fun. And uh, just Should Adam and I leave? No, no, it's all good. This, Couples is, for, therapy this is for public record. But you just said that, you know, the world is, is all about self-care. And I think it's the illusion of self-care yes. that the yes. world is all about. And I think we can agree. I think John Comer's book reveals that with this new age that we are living in. 2000 brought a new age. 2007 brought in a new age with technology. And we're living as the first byproducts of an age of hurry. And that's that's why this book is, is, is important, I think, for us to talk about and to filter our lives through something more than what the technological advances are, with the consumerism, the marketing, all of the things that vie for our attention. Because it comes down to where we place our attention and everything is warring for it. Yeah, and I think with with self-care, what our culture has taught us is that we live for the self-care moments of, if I can make it through this week, yes. then I can go get the pedicure, which yes. I've never done. That's an, it, you, know. uh, you should, or, life-changing. Um, no, nobody's touching my feet. Um, <laughs> so even like three years ago, my thing was uh, it, dealing with workaholic tendencies, things like that. Um, I'm going to push through to get to vacation in the summer and then I'm going to unwind. But here's what I ended up finding. It took me a full week of vacation to come down from the anxiety of the frantic pace I'd been living in. It is so much different when you're talking about the daily practices of self-care and discipline in that self-care. When you get to those moments that you can fully unplug, you go, Oh, and that's this assuming, is nice and a reward. It, that's assuming that the moment ever comes, right? Because you, you sort of push through and go, I'll get to summer vacation and I'll keep working and then I'll get to rest. And, and what I find is I get there and it's a new emergency, right? Some other sort of need and you don't get the time. So you just then live in this burnout cycle. Yeah. And even if you get the escape, the escape only temporarily fixes it. And then you go back to your reality, which is deeply broken. Right. You know? And so like, if you, if you aren't able to order your day to day reality in such a way that you feel, you don't feel like you constantly need that escape and are constantly needing to resort to unhealthy behaviors, it's, it's never going to change. Um, I'll, I'll give a quote from John Mark's book. Um, he, where he says, psychologists tell us anxiety is often the canary in the coal mine our soul's way of telling us something is deeply wrong and we need to fix it fast. In one recent study, 39% of Americans reported being more anxious than they were a year ago. Mm. That's not something to keep your eye on. It's an emotional epidemic. And we should keep in mind this book was released prior to COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Which means that my guess would be all of these statistics and numbers about stress, anxiety, attention span have skyrocketed. Yeah, I don't even think we know. I, I don't even think we know the depth of what ha- the, the p- past couple of years have taken a toll. Yeah, so the book came out in 2019. Um, I mean, so we know all of these numbers have, have, have changed. It makes me think of a quote. <laughs> okay, George, don't kill me. George Acevedo has, has, a, has a, a statement about 
what gets you through the hardest seasons is the daily disciplines and practices. Larry, do you remember how he says that? No, now he's going to hurt us. Now we he's going to hurt us. That what you day, <laughs> what that what you do on days of peace and serenity will sustain you in days of trouble. That's got to be really close. That is really close. <laughs> Poppy, I love you. Yes. <laughs> Essentially, right? The 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 chosen habits, right? Uh, on the best days are what will see you through the worst days. And quite frankly, we've just done a terrible job as having any, at having good practices at all. Just having finished the season of Advent, celebrating Christmas, we are in those days now, uh, lighting that Advent wreath when we're celebrating love, joy, hope, peace, but love, joy, and peace. Those are the things that Christ tried to bring into our lives. Those those things, our identity as in humanity is to have the sense of jo- love, joy, and peace. And that which steals those things is hurry. Uh, and there's this great quote. It was a mentor, spiritual director for C.S. Lewis. We all reference C.S. Lewis many times and places in our writings and our thinkings and just the, his works. But this is what his mentor, Walter Adams, said to him. To walk with Jesus is to walk with a slow, unhurried pace. Hurry is the death of prayer and only impedes and spoils our work. It never advances. And just to live in a different setting, a different mind frame. Uh, this is, you know, working through this book, working through what last year was for us uh, in the Wank household and all of the things that we've experienced, but just in the larger context of ministry, the world has recognized that hurry is not the answer. And we've all been given mandates or other uh, to slow down uh, and to take inventory. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're really talking about here is not something that a pastor named John Mark Comer came up with. (laughs) This is really the lifestyle of Jesus we're talking about. Uh, And if we're going to apprentice our lives to Jesus, we're going to follow him in that way. And that's really what Uh, the word for disciple means is to be an apprentice do as i do Um, he says in the book if you want to experience the life of jesus you have to adopt the lifestyle of jesus which means organizing your life around three basic goals one to be with jesus two to become like jesus and three to do what he would do if he were you oh oh, oh, preach yes so i mean so that's that's where we're at with this and i think um uh, we 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 fr- we need to we need to absolutely get to some of these um, these things that help us to unhurry. But if there is anybody that's listening, and maybe there's just like one that feels this way that doesn't feel like we have a hurry problem, let's talk about the problem. Yeah, Let, let's talk about how we got to this place. I mean, yeah, I, Gabe kind of quoted the most recent. Um, flare, right, and hurriedness uh, is statistically marked in 2007 by the advent and release of the iPhone, uh, my BFF and yours, <laughs> <laughs> which is an incredible tool, right? We recognize, um, especially um, us like millennials, Gen Xers, Gabe's a Gen Xer, I won't, I won't quite label myself in that category, right? We know life pre-having a computer in your hand. And um, there are incredible benefits to it. But the marks of change it brought in attention span and being willing to sit still and not have to constantly be entertained has uh, skyrocketed our um, inability to be slow. Mm -hmm. Or to focus on things for a sustained period of time even. Because there's that constant diversion to where... A smartphone is not a neutral tool if it is actively 
vying for your attention yes right it's not like this thing over here that i can use if i want to it's constantly yelling at me to pick it up and use it for various purposes that may not be constructive or right. helpful um you know it can be a wonderful thing and a wonderful tool but if you don't proactively take steps to make it more of a tool and less of this entity that is constantly vying for your attention it's going to become a problem in your life i mean i've always had the tendency to like noise in mm -hmm. my life uh, so pre iphone and even with it like um my tendency is to have the tv on in the background um to fill the empty space while I'm cooking dinner, right, or, or accomplishing another task. Um, we don't like being in the car without turning the radio on and having something to fill the space and listen to. And before the advent of iPhones and TVs, um, it was that, right? It was the radio, it was the piano, it was conversation or something filling the noise. Quite frankly, we don't like the emptiness that silence and solitude brings. So let's go back even before the iPhone. Uh, one of the oh my favorite. Uh, one of the things that I I highlighted in the in the book um, was that in 1879, what what changed then? I know, I know. Sarah knows. Ford Model T. Hey, uh, no, that, that was 1903. Okay. 1879. 79. You're looking at me like I know, because I'm the old guy. Old guys don't know it all. All right, Sarah, what is it? It's the light bulb. It's the light bulb. Before, because it, it made it possible for people to stay up after sunset. Before the light bulb, before Edison, the average person slept for 11 hours oh, a night. Jesus. 11 hours a night. And, you know, and we talked, you know, like John Wesley, these were people who went to bed at seven o'clock, you know. Yeah. Um, and I've always carried a sense of guilt, right? Of like not, um, you know, John Wesley and others getting up at the crack of dawn to spend time in prayer and be alone with the Lord. And I, yeah, I mean, if you go to bed right now, the sun is setting at five o'clock where we are, right? If you are in bed shortly after the sun sets, you are well rested and waking up at 5 a.m. to meet with Jesus is not a stretch, right? Uh, but in our... so. So light bulbs, which leads to iPhones and then Netflix, right? And what do we do at the end of the day, but just keep pushing that timeline back with more filled space and more entertainment? Yeah, so in, there was a Senate subcommittee in 1967 that said that by 1985, the average American would only work 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year. Oh, little did they know. <laughs> they, they, they thought the major problem in the future was going to be too much leisure time. Okay. Um, and that that's happened a little bit for um, for the French, as he, he says. But the average American now works nearly four more weeks a year than they did in 1979. So we're we're working more, we're sleeping less. Um, the thing around the iPhone, he talked about attention spans. Um, I didn't have that page marked, but yeah, that uh, we now have less attention span than a goldfish. It's page 39. <laughs> Gabe knows what page it okay, is. Even. It up. Hey, and you know, while we're on the topic, because I don't want, I don't want people to feel guilty. And, and I actually really encourage you to read the book because it did not do the thing of like, Oh mom, you are um, pushing too hard, working too much, doing much with your, you, you bad, you, you need to fix it. It actually kind of made me take a, a deep breath of like, Oh, it's, it's a cultural war 
and I'm caught up in that, it did not, it didn't feel like shaming, right? Definitely not shaming. It's just awakening you to the reality of the problem. Kind of a, right. Know, wake up call. Yes. All right. Shout out to Adam. Cause it was earlier. We were talking about the goldfish quote and Adam knew the page. I just remembered. What I looked told it up. Me. I didn't know it. <laughs> So this is this this is some some new uh, phraseology of what we're calling things, uh, but digital capitalism, attention economy, that arms race for people's attention. It, what it is, if a company can get your money, uh, they they first have to get your attention. And here's the trend: uh, each passing year, our attention spans are dropping. In 2000, before the digital revolution really took hold, our attention spans were about 12 seconds. Um, and then it dropped, and it's been dropping. It's now it's eight seconds. Uh, and to put things in perspective, uh, a goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. So that means not only are we losing to a goldfish, but his point in bringing all of that up is that our relationship with God happens in those small in-between moments, right? And our ability to process emotions make sense of our existence um, and and uh, relate to God and one another it happens in those small in-between moments that are now being consumed by our devices. And to be really, uh, I, I'm so glad you went to, to just time in general because this is not an attack on technology um, because if it were not technology we do it with our schedules alone right uh, Larry mentioning that uh, the work capacity and boundaries have been in continual increase people are working now more than ever there are, are more people in each household working now right than a hundred years ago and even the things of like activities and entertainment that fill our schedules in a way they didn't do 20 years ago uh, so so I I, I have this vivid recollection <laughs> that in our family in the 90s, uh, you could have one activity as a child, right? Um, you were allowed one extracurricular. And that was it because mom and dad weren't going to spend all day <laughs> running us each to multiple activities. Um, and, and, and so for me, you know, it was dance. And for my brother, it was music. And for my sister, it was sports, right? S softball or basketball, depending on the season. Uh, now, uh, and then you had things like Wednesdays were protected time where school activities weren't scheduled. Sundays, the whole world shut down. And out of a, a, a increased economics, right? Things are now open on Sundays that weren't decades ago and on Wednesdays. And then there's that parent guilt of exposure for your child to activity and, and things that will make them a well-rounded person. I actually think it started uh, in the 90s or so because of like college applications, this encouragement to like, you have to appear well-rounded in your activities. And so now kids uh, and, and parents and adults are signed up for every activity, every sport, every entertainment thing under the sun. And I get it. I mean, I was Gabe and I had a brief conversation the other day about like, oh gosh, by the time I was Hudson's age, our son, um, you know, I had been exposed to theater. We haven't done that yet, right? Oh gosh, we need to expose him to theater. So he has that experience. And I and and I'm making some decisions based on what I think he needs to make him a well-rounded person. And all that does is add stuff to your schedule, right? So even if we didn't have the phones and devices to fill the space in between, the way we're functioning in, um, last episode I mentioned FOMO, 
right? And I think that's part of what it is. We don't want to miss out on cultural opportunities, entertainment experiences, activities and, and exposures for our children. And so we just keep filling the schedule. But to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, to be living this life uh, in the Wesleyan way, um, boiling it down to it, well, what's so bad about hurry? If I can just do more, isn't that a good thing? But there's something about hurry that there's an absence of love when you're hurrying. And I can I can testify to this and and just say, I, I raise my hand. Hi, my name is Gabe, and I am a uh, I'm a hurrier in recovery. Hi, um, Gabe. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, and John Mark points this out in his book, uh, and I I have to agree. All my worst moments as a father, as a husband, as a pastor, as a son, as a human being are when I'm in a hurry, when I'm late for an appointment, uh, just depending on my unrealistic to do list uh, to try to cram too much into a day. Those are my worst moments. But Jesus said, uh, "What was the greatest commandment out of the Torah?" To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. I, yeah, I mean, I, I deeply appreciate that confession, but I and I think it's just entirely true. When when we are hurried, we are as opposite of Christ as, as we can be, because there is no room for love, which which leads to the things of kindness and patience. And, you know, what's that do to our own spirits, but what does it do to the people around us, especially our children, um, you know, when they watch us in the tizzy? Yeah, so we've, we have aptly <laughs> painted Diagnosed a picture. Diagnosed the problem. And I now feel worse, right, <laughs> about it. And I, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you, you hit on it earlier. Um, when we talk about discipleship in Christianity in the church, we talk about, about choosing Jesus or loving Jesus or Jesus forgiving us. We rarely talk about being followers of the way of Jesus. And I wonder, I mean, that's another episode for another day. Is that where the church has kind of lost course on what discipleship is? Um, but it's always been meant to be uh, that we follow the way of Jesus, that he literally becomes uh, an example to mimic in our lives. And one of the things that was most profound to me in learning that happened just in, in 2020 on um, my first pilgrimage to the Holy Land. So this is weeks before COVID hit United, well, hit anywhere, really, because we were able to get home safely. But we were traveling um, through the Valley of the Doves, actually. And um, our tour guide um, was talking about how Jesus must have endlessly walked this path because it was the the main route to Jerusalem and that he would have taken disciples with him up and down the journey. And he talked about how the teaching and instruction in from Jesus mostly happened with them on this slow-paced walk, right? Um, and that Jesus moved at the speed of walking. And most of his instruction that changed their life, right? This one-on-one -on -one time with the disciples would have happened as they were on these walks for days, right? Learning and listening from Jesus as they literally moved at the pace of walking. And that's the speed at which we learn from Jesus. Yeah, so I think we've aptly diagnosed that 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 problem. So what does it mean to adopt this this lifestyle of Jesus? What do we see in Jesus that that leads us to this 
unhurried lifestyle and how do we translate that to 2022 now of how do we break the the dopamine addiction to to our phones how do we in the midst of crazy busy schedule still find that centeredness um, that allows us not to be hurried and fully embrace the life of Jesus. So the, the ones he lays out are um, Sabbath, silence and solitude, simplicity and slowing. So let's talk about those. Whew. This, uh, this, this slow, the, a lot of these I found in, uh, in the life of Mike Mayfield, Sarah's, Sarah's late father, my father-in-law, who just modeled these in his own life. He had a rule for life. He, you know, monk man, Mike was one of his handles that he liked to go by. Uh, he, he really embodied, uh, these four things. And the thing that really stuck out to me and drove me nuts at the same time, uh, was the slowing and the practice of literally driving below the speed limit. And being intentional to let everybody go by and live a different pace. And I asked him, why do you do this? Because I was sitting in the car going nuts. Like, let's get there. Come on. I always like to go about five over uh, personally. I was going to say, I I have not reached that level of sanctification (laughs) in my own life. (laughs) And he said, it's just, it's a spiritual practice for me. It's helping me slow down and recognize the presence of God in me, through me, around me, and I don't need to be in a hurry because he was working against his own hurried nature. Yeah, and it is the world, right? Um, We were just on a road trip, and the rate at which people will pass you to squeeze into the smallest slot between you and another vehicle to go nowhere, right? Yes. Um, And and so the world has this pace of, I've got to get there faster. One of the most eye-opening things to me was in using my Apple Maps more frequently, not just in going to places where I've never been, but um, even putting in destinations for places I'm familiar with, you know, it gives you an estimated time of arrival. And when I first started using it, I'm like, I can do better than that, right? <laughs> the, I can do better than the estimated time of arrival. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. <laughs> it's, it's probably underestimating right speed and traffic and I can do better. Do you know what I found? No matter how hurried I was or her, how fast I was, if I wouldn't beat it, right? If I was lucky, I'd beat it by a minute or two. And so I started going, well, What's the point of me being so frazzled, right, in pushing to get there if it really doesn't save me time, which it doesn't. So in the book, one of the things that he talks about in, in slowing down is like the checkout lines at Walmart, which we know if you don't want to use the self check, there's only one line open and there's like a thousand people in it, whatever. He said, pick the longer line yeah. and just exist you know use that as as prayer time and you know what is it really going to save you when you're frazzled and looking around for an open thing or standing there griping about how there's not any more cash lines open just do it and he talks about the driving the speed limit and and not passing and things like that and some of these things sound just so foreign to us but what he gives in the book is just a smorgasbord of ideas and not all of them are going to work for for everybody um i've taken a lot of the phone ones uh, and put into use a couple of other ones that that he did with phones um aren't going to work for me like he put his phone into black and white mode so he doesn't get the dopamine hit from it i'm like no i'm not going to do that um 
but to think about how much time is wasted uh, on a phone when we have so little margin anyway, I don't need to lay in bed and scroll TikTok videos until my phone falls and hits me in the face because I've fallen asleep doing it. So I removed it from the room because all I found was I was falling asleep scrolling. I was waking up and the first thing I would do is start scrolling and I would lay there and scroll until I had to pee. Um, so I've just removed it from the room and I have wait for it an alarm clock Woo. an actual alarm clock. I push a button <laughs> and and that so and and it's been an incredibly freeing thing and part of this unhurriedness like I don't feel like I always have to be on now either uh, in the in the midst of that so and, and let's be honest as we mentioned earlier with the things of self-discipline that's what he's talking about in order for us to live unhurried we will have to be better be better prepared right and and quite frankly and I am throwing myself under the bus with this too. If we are unprepared because we want to push the time clock, right? And not deal with stuff and put it off, then we can't slow down, right? Because essentially we've procrastinated even the smallest things, right? So you want to get out the door faster in the morning for school. Well, me um, having a dirty kitchen the night before, right? And not preparing anything or not having a decent bedtime is not going to make it easier to have a slower morning. And so it will require the things of choice and self-discipline to do this. Uh, The question is, if we want the payoff of the non-anxious life, then we have to be willing to do that self-disciplined work. This isn't read a book and magic tips drop out of the sky, right? Like if I, um, yeah, if I want to be slower, if I want to experience solitude and slowness that has an effect on my heart, I have to prepare in advance for that. So things like walking out the door earlier than you normally walk out the door, right? And essentially it's growing up a bit, you know, um, and, and we're not really great at that. But Gabe and I were just kind of getting on our son um, <laughs> on a drive. Like, put your, put your screen down and look out the window, right? Like, soak it up, enjoy life. As I'm scrolling on my phone in the front seat, <laughs> right? Um, uh, that we, we have, we don't display those kind of habits um, of unslowing for other people either. Mm, that could be a whole other episode. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I, and I think it's also important to note, like there is no one size fits all. Like you said, yeah. Like there's, it's not like do this, 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 and this, you know, Larry mentioned TikTok, right. You know, and for me, I can't even have TikTok on my phone because I know I don't possess the level of self-discipline necessary to stay off of it. And so I just don't even make it an option I'm in my you, life. I'm with you on that. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so like I've refused to put TikTok on my phone, you know, so like you guys will send me TikToks from time to time and I watch them on the browser like a lame person because I'm, <laughs> you know, because like I just don't have that, you know, self-discipline. And so like there are certain things that like, you know, in my own life, I know that if I don't have the self-discipline to stay away from it sufficiently, I will just remove it, yeah. you know, um, yeah. and that that can be a good strategy as well. Yeah, I think part of that with self-discipline is knowing what your boundaries are to like work email was a big one for me on my phone. So even though the phone's out of the bedroom now, like I need I can do work email at work when I'm in the office. I don't need to access that at home. So I removed my church account from my phone altogether. Um, because I, I am an office person. I know some of you work from home better than I do. I don't work from home. Well, I have to be in the office. So when I'm in the office Monday through Thursday, I have more than enough time to check my church email. I don't need to do that on my phone and I refuse to do it now. And it's been an incredibly freeing, slowing 
self-discipline like that's time that i could be spending with my family or spending with jesus especially like on like days off sabbath days i there's no need for me to check church email whatsoever yeah because if it's that important they're going to call me they they it can wait until until monday you know some of those practices of simplicity and slowing that have been really effective for me are actually technology based too so even though it is this curse right it can also be a great gift um so being able to add things to my to-do list um, um, when your brain is doing kind of the spinning out things um, and getting them on a to-do list really quickly so that they drop off my mind. But I'm with you like, um, <laughs> I can't do the little red dot. So um, the notifications that pop up all over your phone, I'm too like borderline OCD, right? To have that little dot telling me <laughs> that there are, you know, 45 emails sitting in my inbox. So I don't get notifications for anything, not for Facebook, right? Instagram, Twitter, email. I don't do email notifications. I have to open it and go to it, right? Um, that's not true. So text messages stay open. Um, but, but that's different. Those are people who have my personal number, right? Who are reaching out to me with some sort of need. And I probably have better self-control habits with not answering phone calls or voicemails or text messages until I'm ready than some other folks. So I, I keep that one open, but things like the sleep hours, you've talked about that, Larry, that, um, iPhone at least has a has a feature that will stop pushing notifications to you in the evening through a certain hour in the morning that you choose, right? So my phone stops notifying me um, at eight o'clock at night to like reduce the screen time and to help your mind focus. And then there's a setting about um, <laughs> notifications like from businesses and emails that you've signed up for and you can put them in a summary. So once a day, right, I get the summary of those those notifications. Things like that have helped the slowing quite a lot. And another thing I did, um, and I did this before John Mark, Mark Homer, so I said this has been a bit of a journey for me. Um, I have a separate phone number now. Uh, it's a Google Voice number and that's the number that's published um, to, to my ministry, to the, uh, to the church those notifications get shut off really early. So like my family, friends, my staff, uh, they have my my iPhone number. They can get me a little later than just the random text message of, hey, what time's the church building gonna be open tomorrow? Yeah. Like, I don't need that when when I'm sitting at home. And that that's, and uh, for anybody that wants that, it's free to do a Google Voice number. And you know what, in order to maybe apply some of the ruthless elimination of hurry, some of us may need another book. Uh, it's called Boundaries. And I, very sorry, I forgot the name of the author. We'll do a quick Google search on that. Um, uh, there's a book called Boundaries, right? Because in order to do some of this, you have to be really effective at being able to say no to people and no to things, right? Um, and to essentially to say, my well-being is most important, right? Um, my well-being affects the well-being of other people and... I have to care for that before I can care for them. And let's end this is not just a pastor issue. It's an every person issue of you can't give out what you don't have. Right. So, yeah. So my confession in that has been like, it's yes, it is absolutely what you say no to, but sometimes it's also what you say yes to. Absolutely. And I found myself getting really, really frustrated, like on Sundays sometimes, 
um, watching people like come in for worship and then leave early because they had to get to a softball tournament or not not make worship a priority at all. And pastors, we do this. We can sit around. We can gripe about youth sports all we want. They're not going anywhere. We need to find other ways to better connect with those families. But I was getting frustrated with it. And what I realized was I was also not modeling it myself because my Sabbath day as a pastor is Friday. I think all of us are, are Fridays. Um, what I found myself doing is we started working on our doctor of ministry degree as I was taking the first half of my Sabbath day and working on school. I was doing the same thing as the family that would come in and then leave church early. Uh, I was doing the exact same thing. So part of that is saying yes to Sabbath. And what I've done now is I have to hustle a little bit harder in the early part of the week now so that I can work on school on Thursdays. And then Friday is, is Sabbath period. And I get it. Things happen, things come up, you have a funeral on a Friday or your family's doing a travel thing, whatever, then reprioritize and switch around. And this goes for lay people too. If you're a lay person who's privileged enough not to work on Sunday, don't fill your day with so many things that you miss the 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 just being with Jesus. It's those three priorities that we organize our life around according to John Mark Comer, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what he would do if he were me and time and time again we see jesus saying yes to aramos the lonely place uh the solitude the silence the sabbath before his father um and saying no to other things those other things came in somewhere Mm -hmm. but in the moment this is what i'm going to say yes to and i'm going to prioritize this relationship and sabbath is a verb and we get that wrong so so really all of this uncovers a, a really deep issue that all people have and that is we're really not content with being enough in who we are and so we're really wired to be um, um, known by what we do what we accomplish what we acquire and so there at some point which it's, it's it's cyclical right because more time with jesus and prayer and solitude and silence and presence makes you feel that worth that comes in being enough as you are. Um, but, but we, but we fill our time and we can't, we can't experience that. I'm enough the way that I am, you know, um, without the stuff, our season of grief has taught me that, um, deeply in a way that I wouldn't have expected, I guess, but I guess you don't know what to expect. Yeah. But in the weeks following Bristol's death, this like, you know what, if I, if I can't recover enough to go back to work in ministry, I, I'm still known and loved by God, and that is enough, right? Um, if I never, you know, pick up a pen to write again, I am known and loved by God, and that is enough. If everything fell around, apart around me tomorrow, that I am still a, a child of God, a person of worth who shares in the inheritance of Christ, right? Uh, who's deeply loved by him, who desires to be present with me even in this moment. And essentially out of my desperation, it, uh, excuse me, just, but it can kind of just like everything can go to hell right now because I don't care, right? But God is with me in this and I am still known and completely loved in that. And we, we just don't have a sense of that that allows ourselves to drop everything else, right? Like if we accomplished nothing, right? If we accomplished nothing, but just being more like Christ and living more in his presence, that would be a fulfilling life, right? A very fulfilling and satisfying life. Yeah. Is, is that not what is 
been true of the pandemic and the general election cycle where everything fell apart, our centeredness lacked so much that we were so caught up in our identity as Democrat or Republican or what we were going to do when we didn't have Sunday morning worship that everything fell apart on us where if we would have been the great fault line that was exposed in the church throughout the pandemic is we were not as deep as we thought we were. If we were deeper, if we were farther in this Talmudim lifestyle, being a follower and apprentice of Jesus, our centeredness may have held longer um, and, and more fully in that I am known and loved by God, a child of God, person of worth, and the rest of it can just suck an egg, you know, like, yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, you know, to get what Paul really means when he says to live is Christ. You know, to 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 live as Christ, to die as gain. Am I living my life in a place of rootedness in that identity? You know, and and how are these practices rooting me in that identity as a child of God who is deeply loved, regardless of you know I, who am I uh, finding my identity in my being or my doing? Yes, and 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 you know to, to kind of full circle all of it, right? The reality is in order to get to that place, you will have to practice the things John Mark's talking about, right? Yes. You will have to experience silence and solitude and Sabbath and simplicity and slowing Mm -hmm. in order to get to that place. But then the more you're in that place, the more those things will come naturally to you. And so it, it feeds itself. So unfortunately, yeah, if you're in a place where your life is busy, uh, and I'm not just talking about a calendar. I mean the state of heart, right? You have an anxious heart that cannot take a breath and cannot be in the moment and cannot rest. Um, in order to do that, you will have to um, choose the self-disciplines of making these things a priority in your life. And then these things as a priority in life will feed the ability to be in the moment and to be at rest. And that's it, right? That... Um, Jesus was led in this way of life where he simply was enough Mm -hmm. and he was enough in relationship with the father and everything else, the miracles he performed, the sacrifice he was willing to give, the love he extended to other people was because of the fullness of the relationship he had with God. And that stuff was an overflow, right? Yeah. And we try to do the opposite. We try to practice love or kindness or patience or life experience and then get filled up, right? Um, and, and Jesus's way is the prayer and solitude and presence with, with God was the thing. That was the body, right? Everything else was the icing on top. Yeah, and it wasn't like a means to an end for him. Yes. Like, like the relationship, his relationship with the father was the end. That's right. That was right? the end, and like, that was enough. He, it was a, re- a relentless pursuit. Yes. Of deep relationship with the father. And our kind of Christianity, uh, we have done a terrible job of, of saying your life with Christ is enough, right? Mm-hmm. You being known and loved by God, that is everything and if we were i think better at understanding that the other practices of these things would come more naturally yes i I think we've done a really good job of making church members not creating talmudim apprentices and followers of jesus yeah and and i can you know in in this season we've experienced or i've i shouldn't speak for gabe but um the presence of god has been sweeter and but that's because I've been dependent on it, right? Mm-hmm. I've had this like, 
I cannot get out of bed or I cannot do this thing if Jesus, you don't meet me here right now, right? And I can just linger with you and I can be in your presence. And and it's not prayer. And I think John Mark gets to this. Prayer is different than practicing presence, right? Yeah. And in order to practice presence, you have to turn off the radio, shut off the TV, put your phone down and be willing to be bored for a minute, you know, and then, and, and go, your presence is here, God, right? You're with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, help me to see and experience it. And I promise as you taste presence, you'll only want more presence. And it will be so much easier to put your phone down because <laughs> suddenly you'll feel this like life force of, oh, I need presence. Yeah, right? a, th- a thirst. Yes. Yeah, you know, like yes. a, a thirst for the presence of God. And that is absolutely something that uh, John Wesley had was that thirst for God's presence and that, you know, he lived his life in this way that we're speaking about, this relentless pursuit Mm -hmm. of that relationship and whatever means by which he could pursue that relationship, he did. And he took it seriously. And not only that, but he helped other people understand what that looks like. Um, You know, that was a big part of his ministry was helping other people specify what does this look like? You know, this isn't anything new that we're, you know, we're not breaking new ground here. John Mark, as wonderfully as he wrote this book, he's not breaking new ground. He's just helping us understand what this looks like in 20, you know, 2020 or 2022 as we're in now. But, um, you know, John Wesley, I've, I ran across a, a really great quote in uh, from one of his letters. Uh, it says, always remember the essence of Christian holiness is simplicity and purity. One design, one desire entire devotion to god yeah you know so it's it's that pursuit of the presence it's that pursuit of the relationship with the father that we also see jesus model in his own life yeah Yeah, it's interesting when you think about where did when did jesus start exuding sharing being being noticed as someone emboldened and empowered by the power of god the power of the spirit it was well at his baptism the heavens opened up. He was proclaimed as his son. Listened to him, and then he was led to the wilderness. And we think of the wilderness in, in many different ways over the course of our lives. Well, like why, what, what was the purpose thereof? But to be tempted. But it was it was it was to be tempted. But when he was his strongest, mm-hmm. we think the wilderness and forty days of fasting and being alone, that solitude, that silence. But that's where the height of Jesus's spiritual powers were manifest in that one-on-one time with God, being mm-hmm. ministered to by the angels. Yeah. And that's where he was able to face and resist the three temptations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a it was a place of strength for him, uh, not not weakness. And the you know the other thing that John Mark so not only does he talk about that in his book, but he also talks about you know when it came to Jesus's patterns of silence and solitude and that pursuit of the the relationship with the Father, the fuller his life got, the more he would seek that out. Yeah. Right, yeah. you know, so like he talks about the story in in Mark one, uh, where they had a banner day of ministry. Right, you know, the entire town is beating down Jesus's door for you know to be healed and to be ministered to and everything. And the next morning, Jesus wakes wakes up early and goes off to to the wilderness to be in prayer and his disciples wake up looking for him because the entire town is there waiting to be healed. And they're like, where's Jesus? <laughs> where'd he, where'd he go? And they, so they come out looking for him and they're like, what the heck, man? Like, hello, do you not realize that Jesus is like, 
uh, yes, I do. <laughs> I do realize that, uh, you know, what, what people are wanting of me, but this is of what is utmost importance right now. And to have that clarity of mind, that wisdom and discernment to not allow your life to be ruled by the tyranny of the urgent and what's right here and on fire right now, but to be able to step away and say, no, what's most important right now uh, is that I don't lose that quiet center of being able to live out of that place of relationship. Yeah, there's this, um, there's a sense, right, that we have become awful at being able to discern the difference between urgent and important. Mm -hmm. And we're orienting our lives around the wrong things, which is then having this cascading effect, right, of, um, of, the urgent suddenly feeling like the important mm -hmm. and, and we have not been able to, to break the cycle, you know, and I, I hope some of this, because again, it's not John Mark, right? This is great authors like John Ortberg and Dallas Willard and all the way back, right? To John Wesley and to the things of Jesus. But, um, I, I hope that something in here today has helped at least kind of, um, push the line for you to say you're done being, tired from the hurry of life, right? And that there are tools available to us, choices we can make to fix it and break the cycle. Uh, we'll have to do the disciplining work of doing that, right? We, You're the only one who can choose. I'm the only one who can choose to set down my phone or turn off the notifications and be present in the moment and to look for the presence of Jesus. Nobody can do that for you, but hopefully this has been a starting place to say it's time. Yeah, so uh, definitely get the book by John Mark Comer uh, and Boundaries that we also uh, mentioned. We'll put a link um, to the Kindle version of uh, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Boundaries is by Henry Cloud and John Townsend. Um, and then uh, for the sermon series that Adam and I are doing at our churches, I wrote a companion guide um, that goes along with each of the sermons. Uh, we'll put that on as a PDF link, uh, too, if that's helpful. There's some different exercises to try along with silence and solitude and simplicity. Um, and some things will will work. Uh, some things won't. Like I said, it's a smorgasbord of, of ideas, um, but it's got to start somewhere. Uh, and so many people have said that 2020 was a bust for all of us. The world fell apart. We thought 2021 was going to be better. It did not live up to the hype. Um, so let's, let's try to start 2022 with this idea of I'm going to focus on this singular goal that John, like John Wesley said, this simplicity and, and, and holiness. Um, and I'm going to work on unhurrying my life so that I can say yes to more of Jesus. Yeah, because this, these sorts of things that we've been talking about, it has nothing to do with your life circumstances. You can mm -hmm. practice these things, whatever is going on in mm -hmm. your life, you know, and it all comes down to, to not, uh, this pursuit of, uh, you know, not in, attempting to gain the whole world while losing your soul yeah. in the process. Yeah. 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 Back to that, like what's most important in 2022 or in any year of your life is that you are known by Jesus, right? You know him in return and the pursuit of that uh, trumps everything else and will be more satisfying than any resolution or goal we can set for a new year. Um, yeah. Mike drop. 
Well, speaking of, uh, we have to have a little fun because I don't know about you. My, like my, my blood pressure, my heart rate is up a little bit just talking about like the life of hurry and anxiety. Uh, and tonight, uh, or no, I'm sorry, uh, you have recently rung in the new year, right? And have celebrated what 2022 will be. Um, and some of you may have set some resolutions in the process to do that. Uh, and so our, our fun for tonight will be um, talking about <laughs> the popular, most popular resolutions and doing some statistical play. Okay, you guys ready for this a little bit? Uh, which I will be really interested to see like four years from now, what 2022 resolutions were. Because there's been some consistent themes, right, in resolutions um, over the decades. And so what have been the most consistent themes in in a year of pandemic. That will be really interesting to get some hindsight on. All right, so uh, these statistics are around 2021. Are you guys ready? All right, you can probably guess, but do it anyway. What were the most, uh, the top three or four most popular resolutions for 2021? Lose weight. More exercise. Quit drinking. Get rich. Well, you, yeah, pretty much hit most of that. Get married. So. <laughs> so most popular resolutions for 2021 were exercising more and improving fitness, 50% of participants, losing weight, 48% of participants, saving money, 44%, and improving diet, 39%. So three of the four are about being healthier and getting in shape, right? Unhurrying will help with all of that. Yes. <laughs> all right. So what's your guess as to the number of people who made those resolutions? How many kept? What percentage of people kept resolutions? It's really low. I, I don't know a number, but it's really low. This would be for 2020. I'm going to pull out 23%. Oh, I, I bet it's lower than that. I bid $1, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> All right, in 2020, 35% of people kept all their resolutions. Wow. 49% kept some, and 16% failed at keeping any of their resolutions. I remember reading something like, most resolutions fail in the first three weeks. Yes. Yeah. All right, so here's a little generational fun, because we sometimes reference that. Let's talk those statistics by generation. So what was the top... Uh, resolution for baby boomers in 2021 retire (laughs) (laughs) spend more time with the grandchildren you guys are being like really idealistic it was to lose weight (laughs) and then this one second was to place less importance on saving money oh my guess is because they already did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they already oh, saved the money. What a they boomer thing to say. <laughs> yeah. Now they now they have to spend it. Yeah. yeah. All right. What is Gen Z's biggest resolution in 2020? Oh, Gen Z. Ooh. And that's uh, for the audience. That's like college age, right? Yeah. Ju- ending they're, college. They're starting to enter the workforce. They're, they're starting, just starting to enter the workforce, the workforce through like college. Find a way to be rich without working. You don't give them a whole Burn. lot of credit, do you? A million followers on TikTok. 
you guys, you're, that was those were very oh. those were very boomer answers. Oh. Sorry, <laughs> but we're not boomers. Disparaging Gen Z. Sorry, Gen Z listeners. Uh, you assume we have Gen Z listeners. <laughs> <laughs> we do not. I'm sure. All right, uh, finding love was the top, oh. and then in a very Gen Z move, dressing better. Oh. Yeah. oh. Okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Of the generations. So, like, Boomer, Gen X, Millennial, Gen Z, who's most confident that they will keep their resolutions? Millennials. It's got to be millennials. We're very arrogant. Agreed. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm an ex annual, though. All right, and then last last statistical guessing. All right, these are uh, resolutions by region, okay? So think, like, Northeast, South, Midwest, West Coast, okay? Um, U.S. region. Of the region, regions, <laughs> which reason fa- region found it most important to lose weight in their resolution? Pacific Northwest. Agreed. I was going to say beach climates. Uh, no, it's the Midwest. Oh. Just put on a pair of overalls. We're all just fat and happy. <laughs> apparently, apparently not. Just put on a pair of overalls. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Too much corn in our diet. I'm going to change it up in how I ask a bit. So what might have been the top resolution for the southernmost states? More sweet tea. I can get behind that, but no. Any guesses? Eat more barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> I can also get behind that, but no. Adam? I got nothing. I don't know. <laughs> how about drink less alcohol oh well there you go yeah more sweet tea hey there you go (laughs) all right um the northeast probably has the most unique resolution of regions um they are almost twice as likely to want to do something as their new year's resolution any guesses what their resolution and it's an it's something to do hiking or biking exercise travel to give them some credit theirs is the most uh, is the least selfish right of resolutions uh they're they're twice as likely to want to spend more time volunteering in their communities oh that's nice yeah that's but they're also the ones that fail in the first three weeks yeah (laughs) (laughs) and quit (laughs) um yeah yeah. So whatever you set your goals to be for this year, whether that is getting healthier or spending less money, saving more money or, um, you know, exercising more that those those top three resolutions, we hope that you'll add to the list actually doing um, what it, what has been a habit of mine. So I have not I'm not bragging on myself, I promise, because I also fail at these. Um, I have a tendency to not set resolutions. Uh, oh, that's because I'm an Enneagram 7, and I don't like to fail at things, So, or, or to suffer. Um, so I have to avoid the process of suffering. <laughs> so so my, my tendency has been to say I want to do something more, right? Like, I, I, what am I going to add to? And I don't mean in the sense of my schedule, but like I want to um, paint more, right? Or I want to spend more time with my family and trying to set the values that way. Maybe this year, instead of exercising more or eating less or quitting smoking, maybe you add the ruthless elimination of hurry. Yeah, and if you're feeling totally frazzled and feel like you're just hurried beyond uh, belief, you have to start somewhere. And we're going to end with a quote from Shannon at 
Alder, who said, All great beginnings start in the dark when the moon greets you to a new day at midnight. Happy New Year, and we'll see you next time on Midnight Theology. Bye, y'all.